Welcome to Me, Myself, and Millie, a podcast that gives light and levity to infertility and different pathways to parenthood. I'm Millie Brooks, and today's guest is Tiff Remington. You probably know her and her husband, Caleb, by Us the Remingtons. Welcome to the show, Tiff. Millie, it is so good to see you, and I so wish that I could just hug you in person. It's it's so wild this past couple years. Years, I'm sure as everyone has felt how disconnected but connected we all have been. So you know that's you put it you just said it perfectly. I mean, yeah. I've felt like, you know, you know, our paths have kind of always crossed in the infertility community. Mm-hmm. And I'm just so glad that I can actually have a moment to sit down with you one-on-one and get to know your story a little bit better. Yeah, I'm so grateful. And I just want to say thank you so much for bringing, I know I'm speaking on behalf of so many women out there, so many smiles and laughter. I mean, through Aww. this whole journey, it is like in the community, like what I love about it is that we're all very vulnerable and very real. And it's a lot of heaviness that comes with a lot of our stories. But I swear ever since I had found you, I look forward to just your stories every day, just to see what's going on in the life of Millie and your voice instantly like fills a room with so much joy. And, and I just want to say thank you so much for creating the space for um, folks like us in the community and also just being you. You're really, really, truly amazing. Tiff, thank you. Wow. That is so (laughs) generous and kind of you to say. Thank you. I love you. Of course. Okay, let's Um, get into it. Well, there's lots of places that we could start, but let's first unpack your amazing DIY skills. (laughs) Please unleash the deets on how handy and crafty you are. One, two, three, go. Okay, well, I... I can't take full accountability saying that I'm a professional at anything. I I think I'm a wonderful, um, uh, what is it called? It's like failure to thrive kind of personality. (laughs) I don't know. You deserve more credit than that. I do. I will... I will say, okay, so my dad was a mechanic um, and growing up, I was very, I was a very like handsy person. I started work when I was six. I worked at a subway. My mom owns, you know, doing popping on the kick stool, making sandwiches, hitting the register. So like I found my hands very early um, and I always had an interest of deconstructing things and putting them back together, whether if it was correct or not. I just, (laughs) it was just one of those things. So I think it definitely bled into the adult world of living. Um, I love it. Yeah. And my husband and I, um, bought a RV, a motorhome in 2018. And we totally just tore it apart, had no idea what we were doing. We literally were sitting in, I don't even know how many Home Depot parking lots that kicked us out because we were doing stuff in their parking lot. But like, we owned maybe a hammer and like one screwdriver and Caleb came out with the whole like 
thousand dollar shebang of like everything. And we just learned and picked up the tools and started doing. And we felt comfortable, at least if we were breaking stuff, like we were at least breaking stuff on a minuscule level rather than like, you know, living in a full on house like we are now and attempting the same work that we did. Yes, yes. That was sort of a good precursor. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's crazy, but it, you know what's really awesome about Instagram, as we know in the infertility world too, is just the community of um, women that are on uh, that are that are on on there. And I've learned like through so many DIY women, like, and it's I, I attribute a lot of my courage um, to mm. take on new projects from them. So, uh. yeah. I love it. I love it. I mean, I see you with an electric um, (laughs) sander. I think that's what it's called. And I'm like, oh, my God, she is going for it. Like, Uh. you're buffering furniture. You're buffering, like, um, uh, handrails, you know, for your stairs. And I'm like, this girl is awesome. A badass. Look at her. <laughs> I love you. You know what's so funny about that sander is I bought it because I was going to start reupholstering my chairs and I was nine months pregnant and I thought I had, I was two weeks out from my due date and I had just started leaking um, some fluids earlier that week. So I went into the OB just to triple check everything and Lo and behold, my water did break at some point during that week and I was leaking. So they didn't let me go home. And I was the most disappointed because I wasn't able to use my sander. (laughs) I don't think the reality of like that I was having a baby like that day hit me. And I literally was like, you're not letting me. So I can't go home. They're like, no, I'm like really cramping my style. I mean, I like we're really planning on breaking that thing in today. I was so set. It was it was honestly probably one of the biggest downfalls of my my DIY journey. Oh <laughs> my gosh! Great. I had a baby that day, so it was, it was fine. Yes, and you returned to the sander, and you I just returned got busy. to it. You're right. You're right. Yes, I found the light again. <laughs> well, um, well, tell us a little bit about who you are. I guess outside of yeah. infertility. Yeah. So I, I guess high level, I'm a now a mother um, of, gosh, she's almost five months. It is so crazy, Millie. I mm. swear when people tell you like, oh, the days are long, but they're also short. Mm-hmm. It's like, I didn't believe that until it actually like became my reality. And it's, it's crazy. So that's one of the biggest accolades I will hold um, to my name is being a mother. Um, but other than that, I'm a sister, a daughter, um, and I am a philanthropist. I worked in um, corporate social responsibility uh, for, gosh, I don't know, like eight or so years. And I started segway in, segueing into helping brands and companies identify ways to give back. Um, I went to school for advertising and business, uh, mainly to understand the consumer mindset so I can help build the bridge to charity because that's always been 
kind of really rooted in me. I, I think I get that a lot from my grandmother um, who builds a ton of temples and um, and communities uh, back in Vietnam. So I feel like her blood just runs through my veins. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, and ever since meeting Caleb, um, who has helped me tremendously uh, of being more comfortable of talking about my own mental health and also just encouraging me on my own healing journey, I've become um, a bigger advocate in, in mental health and also um, raising awareness for cystic fibrosis because he uh, was born with CF as well. And that kind of also what led us into the whole infertility community um, uh, as well. And just like a little tidbit of that, um, 98% of men who are born with cystic fibrosis um, are infertile due to the absence or the underdevelopment of their vas deferens, so the highway for the sperm. Um, mm. How yeah. does that happen? I, I I can't I can't really tell like the specific scientific reason, but mm-hmm. it's because. Gosh, I'm going to butcher him. This is where I wish I had him on here. It has to do something with um, just like the thick, sticky mucus that gets built up in his lungs primarily, but other organs of their other oh, organs of their body. So I see. I, I can see. see. Now I might be corrected <laughs> probably later, and I will let you know mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. if there are other reasons, which I'm sure there are as well. Um, but that's with CF. I, they're now thankfully starting to kind of branch out into um, investing more research and um, resources for CF patients uh, for family planning and all of that stuff. Because unfortunately, originally, like most of like the research and all this stuff is going towards finding targeted treatments and the cure because, you know, when Caleb was born, his life expectancy was 19. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the kids, you know, born in his era weren't even living into adulthood, let alone becoming parents. Mm -hmm. So now they have, they've, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation and other foundations as well alike have created such an incredible pathway for um, CF patients to thrive. And Caleb's on this new medication called Trikafta that's helped him, uh, that's changed his life mm. as of like two years ago. He's, it's like, he is, he says it's like he's walking around with a new fresh set of lungs and mm. he doesn't feel like any really any side effects of CF anymore. So wow. it's, it's really incredible. And, and for us and our journey, it, it means so much because I mean, his life expectancy right now is 37 and we're both 31, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily staying there. So I think mm-hmm. that's, you know, that was part of our conversation going into even before going into IVF when we met at 24, like, okay, if the reality of CF sets in and we do have a family, what does that mean to you if you were going to be a single parent? And how, so there's just so much complexity that comes with it. Um, 
and a lot of emotional and mental weight that comes in even deciding to start a family uh, when it when it comes to um, having chronic illness involved in your relationship. So, right. Anyway, that was just way off tangent. <laughs> no, no. It actually, I mean, it dovetails into my next question, which yeah. is, you know, tell us a little bit about you know, your fertility journey, give us a glimpse of it up to this point. Yeah. So uh, I'll backtrack. Um, again, I, I mentioned it briefly, but we met when we were 23, 24. Um, we honestly started b- talking about family on our second date, <laughs> second group date. I feel like this is so bachelor style. Caleb was all about the group dates. <laughs> the one, the one-on-one scared him shitless. Oh, wow. Okay. He didn't, he's never, he was never in a relationship prior to me. Like I was his first relationship and, and first serious commitment. Um, so yeah, the second day he told me about CFO. I already kind of knew cause we met through a mutual friend. So I knew about cystic fibrosis, but I didn't know the severity of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had asked me what my desires were about family and how many kids I wanted if I wanted any. And I was like, oh, I'm like, I don't, I would love to like in an ideal perfect world have two or three kids if, you know, it worked out and all that stuff. And I saw his face like grow super somber and kind of just like, he, he, I saw him like retreat and pull in. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. And I was mm-hmm. like, what about you? And he's kind of shied away from it and was like, oh, yeah, like family would be so awesome. But then that same night I went home because I knew something was up. And that's when I Googled about CF and fertility. And that's where I learned about the 98% of men being infertile. And that's kind of like how I pieced everything together um, uh, with his response. So Yeah, he, the next time we talked, he goes, I don't know. He's like, I really like you. I just don't know if I would ever be able to amount to what you're, like, what you're deserving of. So he's like, maybe we shouldn't, like, Mm. continue. Or maybe we shouldn't, like, explore this relationship. So he already, whoop, put up the wall. Mm, And it mm -hmm. was so sad and... um. To be honest, I mean, we were young. We were 24 years old. We had to, I did not know really anything about IVF. I knew about the possibilities of it, but I didn't know the intricacies of anything. But I'm like, you know, we'll figure it out when we get there. And then we also had to have the conversation of like, oh, if it doesn't work, then, you know, how do we advance from here? So I think before we even got into like a fully committed relationship, we, we individually had to really unpack um, the idea of potentially having our own biological children. So that was, that was a lot to take in. And I think that sounds very smart and like emotionally healthy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I'm very grateful that our relationship started off with transparency and, and communication and 
learning. I mean, it wasn't like a straight shot. I mean, we definitely stumbled in a way of like trying to support one another emotionally and mentally through like hard conversations like this. But I think because of Caleb's past and my past with abuse and all of this stuff, we were really like very headstrong about putting everything on the table and not letting that affect our future because it's affected so much of our past. Mm -hmm. So we're really grateful that we and very privileged in the way that we've been surrounded by the communities that we have to have had the head on the shoulders that we even still do today. So that is a very long, I will zoom past the, (laughs) no, that gives us, that gives it a great (laughs) context because I think, you know, you guys did come to the table with a unique set of circumstances. Yeah. And this kind of conversation. I know so many people, like um, even my uncle, mm-hmm. who they never, and this was also many years ago, but his first wife, they never even discussed children yeah. before yeah. they got married. Mm-hmm. You know, like we've definitely evolved a lot from that point, but it's just like, it's interesting to know the conversations that need to happen. Um, Did they have kids when they were younger as well? They didn't. They They didn't. They actually, they got a divorce because she wanted kids and he didn't. And so it was just like, it was like one of these like 19, you know, 1970s sort of like, let's not talk about it. Let's not discuss it. Let's just assume we're all on the same page about Mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's just, I, I just think it's, um, it's, it's great that like we're at a place now where we can Mm -hmm. full transparency is very, um, and immediately too is encouraged. I mean, what about for you guys? Did you guys have like a straight sit down formal conversation? Was it like something in passing? Like how, how did that all come up for you guys originally? We did. I think it was really important to me that like, I just not waste my time with somebody who I didn't feel like our futures really lined up together. You know, like Mm -hmm. if I really wanted this and, you know, the person I was with um, didn't, it, it just wasn't a priority for them. Then mm-hmm. I think that, you know, yeah. I would just be like, all right, you know, see you later. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, it is like so taboo. I'm now like thinking even prior to Caleb, cause I went on a handful of dates when I moved out to LA and, I just shoot straight to the point and I like go deep and talk about those kind of questions. I realized how uncomfortable a lot of the men that I dated were. Mm-hmm. And it, and I think, I, and I don't know because I can't speak to like the men's perspective. I don't know if it's like so shocking because they can only process like what is currently in front of them in the future. Like any mm-hmm. future talk like scares them shitless. And mm-hmm. they're just like, and you're like, you're talking marriage, kids and all this stuff. Like, this is commitment. I'm just like, oh, no, I was, I'm just making conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I think you it's, know? it's really interesting, isn't it? It is. It is. So I hope, you know, uh, I hope that this becomes more of the norm. I, I, I'm starting to see that it is. And I feel like the Gen Zs, I really haven't figured out. Uh, we're, we are that old now, now that we s- say that we can't figure the generation under. Uh, yeah, we are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We are. 
Gen Z's. But they still have this area they need to check off the back. But I feel like this generation is very outspoken and they Mm. are like, I feel like they're really picking up the reins of what us millennials have tried to put down of, you know, social injustice and um, like breaking barriers and trying to stop different traumas, even though there's so much out there that is still like so traumatizing just to their generation in general. But I don't know. I, I hope this becomes part of the norm. All is to say. I do too. And getting back to yes. your journey. So you guys had that those important conversations early on, which is mm-hmm. so great. And when after you got married, where did it go from there? Yeah, so we got married. Gosh, well, how old were we? We were 28. I'm losing my mind these days, Millie. Is, <laughs> I'm losing my mind as much as it's I'm losing my hair. Fumes. It's the paint fumes. I'm kidding. I, yeah, no, but it probably might be. I, <laughs> I, would, I, would, I wouldn't put it past myself on that. That or sawdust. Um, but yes, got married at 28. 28 and 29 was like our really focal year of like, let's get like our health into check because we don't know what this infertility journey is going to look like for us, but we better give it our best shot, you know, first time go around. So it was a lot of focusing on just lifestyle changes, you know, from things that we ate, you know, processed foods, sugars, um, being more mindful about gluten and just a lot of like the inflammatory foods. We really tried our hardest to like really cut that out. And then we started doing the vitamins and all that stuff. So that was like the two years that were like, let's go ham on health. Um, and then July, 2019 was our first, uh, reproductive endocrinologist appointment. And we went to two or three, um, we did some consultations, um, and then we chose one. Then Caleb had gone to the urologist to just absolutely confirm that he did not, um, aspirate any sperm, which we quickly found out was true. Um, and then we had scheduled his micro We had wanted to get everything done like as soon as possible. And I think that was the first thing in the the IVF world that we were (laughs) introduced to is nothing is on our timeline. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they're like, yeah. And this was in September. They're like, yeah, we can schedule a micro which is what we had to do for Caleb in order to get sperm. They're like, well, the next uh, surgery date is February of 2020. So we're like, okay, I guess this is what we do. Mm Mm-hmm. And the micro is a procedure. Does he go under mm-hmm. anesthesia for that? Yeah. So because it, so there's like Tessies, Tessas, and the micro The Tessie and the Tessas are generally, I think, local anesthe- anesthetics. Anesthetics? Is that what it? Why does sure. that sound right? Yeah, but the, not. We get it. We get it. <laughs> Um, but the micro because they actually go through the epididymis and the scrotum, but like mainly the epididymis. So they make two cuts. They, they put them under. Got it. And we chose to do that because we were 
we didn't know how much sperm they were going to find just in the testing in general, because CF is just such a like question mark. So we're like, well, if you're in there, you might as well just go for the gold, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, he, we were able to get 11 vials of sperm, which is fantastic. Um, I think each vial holds anywhere from like 200 to 250. Oh, million or just two? No, 200 to two. I, I see again, I don't know if this is like specific to his case of like, I don't know if the vials can hold more or if that's just all they got from Caleb. Okay. Um, but they didn't get, I don't know, but Caleb definitely doesn't have a lot of sperm. Yeah. That's just to begin with. So we couldn't do an IUI because they weren't able to extract millions like right. normal right. men do. So, um, but anyway, so the Tussie went great. Um, and then we started scheduled, we scheduled for uh, the beginning of our retrieval in March, that following month. Um, and I started taking my oral medications. And then soon after we stopped because the pandemic hit. So, mm. and the the office didn't know what they were doing and all that stuff on protocols and so we're like, okay, we'll just go with the flow. And then um, as the pandemic just, I mean, it's affected everyone um, uh, across the uh, across the globe. So we kind of just waited um, until our time arrived. And August, they finally were um, accepting us again. So that's when we did our retrieval. And we had 17 eggs, 14 matured, 13 fertilized, 10 made it to day three. And then we ended up with six embryos um, that we sent off for testing. And we didn't do, uh, we did PGTA instead of PGTM because I found out that I was not a cystic fibrosis carrier. Got it. So if I was a carrier, we would have done PGTM to see which embryos indeed had CF. Okay. So yeah. And then October, we did our first transfer. And of the six embryos that you did PGTA uh-huh. on, were all, did all of them come back normal? No. So three came back normal and then one came, one was a mosaic embryo. Got it. But our our clinic doesn't transfer mosaic embryos. Does your clinic, does any clinic transfer mosaic embryos? I think it depends on, I know my clinic won't discard them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it depends on the grade. Like there's a low and high uh, yeah. grade for them. It was a high, it was like a good grade embryo. I mm-hmm. think it was if I'm not mistaken, like the abnormality that they did find was not one that they would transfer. Okay. Like the slightest abnormality, but that's what's so hard because you're sitting there and you're like, but can you still like, right? Like, why can't we just still take that chance? You know what I mean? It's so totally, totally. And also the information 
like when I did an episode with my doctor on mosaic embryos, Mm -hmm. I remember her saying that like the information about mosaic embryos is constantly changing. Mm -hmm. Like we could know more information about them next year, Mm -hmm. you know, and how to determine, you know, implantation and other, other types of success rates. Yeah. Just because science is constantly evolving. So yeah, no, that's so interesting. Yeah. I'm curious to see, you know, what that means for the fate of all the mosaic embryos out there, because you just, yeah, as you know, like you just don't stop thinking about them. Well, absolutely not. And so were you able to, you know, freeze that embryo and keep it? Yeah. Did they discard it? I don't think they just, we kept it. I don't know if I, I can't remember if I like had to really fight for them to keep it because Mm. they were like, well, we don't transfer it. I'm pretty sure I put up, I put up so many fights that I don't remember what (laughs) fight. <laughs> what battles were what anymore? Yes, yes. I'm just like any infertility person out there. We're on the phone with them on speed dial, telling them what to do. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> and conversations bleed into each other. You can't really remember one thing from the next. Oh my god, I know it's so crazy. Um, but no, we we kept it. I remember. So. Um, fingers crossed that there's more research out there and that you just get to be able to keep and maybe transfer that little one. Yes. And so you, so in, after your egg retrieval, you did do a transfer in 2020, right? I did. So we did both of our transfers. So in October, 2020, we transferred the embryo stuck, but then I had a chemical pregnancy. So we had a miscarriage. Um, Mm. I think it was like after 14 days. So, so hard, so disheartening. And it really kind of just took the sail out of our winds and, Mm. or took the wind out of our sails. And I, that was the first I mean, there's always so many doubts and fears and uncertainties with the whole thing, but that was the first time I actually like truly doubted my body. And I was like, Mm. oh no, is there something that I did? Is it something that's wrong with me? And, you know, you crawled down that, that pretty deep hole, but I, I feel like that is just, we're humans. That's just what we do. Right. And I think like, Mm -hmm the complexities of loss is just like so massive and it goes in so many different directions. And a lot of the times you're like, are these feelings even my own feelings? And you go down like this other crazy spiral of all these things. And I have a history of chronic depression and anxiety. So I just, it literally felt like I shrunk up and fell into a black hole. And I didn't, mm. I didn't move for like a week and a half or so, but yeah, it's paralyzing. It's paralyzing. It is. And it's, and it's so hard because, you know, you, I didn't get that many, but like there are people who did come in through the DMs being like, it was early and it was like, no worries. Like uh, well intent, but just not the right things to like say. And yeah. I think that's what made it 
sting a little bit more because I felt like, and it wasn't even other people starting to be, it was myself that was judging of like, am I making this a bigger deal than like it actually Mm. is? And like, well, maybe, and I started dismissing my own feelings. I'm like, well, okay. Like this was our first try. Like other people have like, have it so much like harder. And it's like, people are right. Like this is, it was early and at least it stuck. And like, so I started like, and it wasn't even a lot of people telling me that it was my own kind of like narrative that was starting to uh, like take over. And I'm a very over empathetic and compassionate person. So I think that's also, it's like a blessing and a curse, but I think that's what's a lot of the times drives those voices in my head. Yeah. And it could be just from one person being like, oh, it was early. Yeah. And then everything else is like yeah. made up in my own mind. And I was like, yeah, you know what? You're right. It is early. And anyway, so that was a lot. And I, and I knew my, for myself, like I need a plan. I need a, I need another goal. I need another plan. Otherwise I'm going to continue to spiral. And then if I'm in a depressive episode, like it takes me a while to come out. So I'm like, someone put me and it's not for everyone. Right. So I, I talked to my doctor and I'm like, how soon can we do the next transfer? If you truly believe that it's just like a probability thing and there's nothing that I can do or control, I'm like, then let's go for the next one because mental, like physically I'm like, uh, like if you think if everything checks out great, I'm like mentally, I'm like, I know myself, I can't put time in between or I will, I don't know if I'll ever get there again. So we did the tran- we did our next transfer that following month. Your next cycle. My next cycle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And which is so wild because like, you know, as you're taking off the patches and you start to bleed from your miscarriage. They're like, okay, put the patches back on. And you're just like, mm-hmm. but I'm still miscarrying. And this is, and that's where it was like, kind of like a mind fuck. Absolutely. And like, I'm like, I don't understand what is going on. And I kind of almost just had to put blinders on. Cause I'm like, okay, just like you can emotionally unpack, emotionally, mentally unpack this later, like focus, focus, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm we got our next thing. Let's, let's go, let's go to it. So, so you transferred your next embryo. We transferred Faye. Oh yeah. Faye. And what grade was Faye? Did, did they do an embryo grading? Uh, she was, they didn't do like A, Bs or like three, A, three B. They just say good, fair or poor. She was a, so our first one was a perfect embryo, beautifully hatched, like nothing wrong with it. Um, PGTA normal. And that's when we miscarried. And Faye was a good quality, but she, uh, the way that she wasn't, I I don't think in their eyes, I guess she was one under the other. Okay. (laughs) Got it. But she was still good. Mm-hmm. And then our last embryo that we have is like a fair, I think he was, he's a, it's a boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he is a day six and he is fair. 
Okay. And he's still at your clinic in Southern California. He's still in San Diego. Oh, It's so, is it weird to like really feel so distant? Like I just, I've been talking to Kayla about this lately too, because I think that's one of the things about infertility too, is like, we're trying so much to enjoy the presence of Faye and we're so, so, so grateful to have her in our arms and like, we don't want to miss a beat or anything, but at least for me, especially, I feel like in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking about my last embryo. I'm like, okay. And then the next steps, I'm like, well, I, he needs to work. And like, if he doesn't, what does that mean? Like, how does this, like my mind still kind of just still wrapped up in like the infertility, like just world of it all. And it sucks because I also, then that brings on like the mom guilt, right. Of like, Mm. Oh, just be present. And then I also feel guilty where I'm like, dude, you have a miracle that so many people are fighting for. Mm. And I'm like, so stop. So it's just like, it's this back and forth battle of like, okay, be there. Yeah. Well, and I also think that you do with infertility, you need to be vigilant. You know, you Mm -hmm. have to, you have to have a plan, Mm -hmm. you know, because not having a plan, failing to have a plan is planning to fail. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because I feel like with, you know, normal or not infertile, let's just call them not infertile folks. Mm -hmm. Um, they can, they have the luxury of time and not having a plan and just going for it, you know? Yeah. When us, when we require a lot of preparation and thought and planning. Yep, exactly. I want to go back to um, more details into the genetic screening that you did um, prior to your egg retrieval. Mm-hmm. Share a little bit about that. Honestly, we were going back and forth. We didn't make the decision right away if we were going to make, if we were going to do the screening because we didn't know how many embryos, A, we were going to get. B, we were still so back and forth on like just the research of like, does it impact the embryo when you take, you know, if you take, um, a sample from them. A biopsy. You, mm-hmm. Yeah, biopsy. And and I think we were just going back and forth. Like, we honestly didn't make up the decision until mm, after we got the results back from like day seven. And they're like, okay, we're going to freeze them. Do you want us to biopsy or not? And we ended up deciding to do it because we had sex and we're like, okay, if this means that we're able to get to our baby sooner, I don't even know what the thought process, it was just so complicated. <laughs> I feel like we were just so emotionally wrapped up of back and mm. forth. I think honestly, I wasn't even, I didn't even make a decision. I think Caleb was like, let's just do it. Like, uh huh. I think I was gripling with the fact th- about the biopsy and I was just like, but I was like reassured by, you know, our doctors and also we have, geneticist friends and Caleb and I actually worked in biotech for um Caleb worked in uh the bio biotech for 
nine years and I worked in it for four. And so we're familiar, but it was just, I don't know. It was just I mean, so- did you, because you did find out that you weren't a carrier for cystic yes. fibrosis. So what, what, talk to us about that process. So I did a carrier screening um, prior to us even starting cystic fibrosis. So I just you mean IVF. Ask, I'm sorry. Yes, IVF. Kelly, <laughs> <laughs> what day is it? What year is it? It's okay. It's what okay. Are we even I'm talking here. about I'm anymore. I'm here. I'm here to keep us on the path. No, yes, thank you. Um, yes, before starting IVF, I did a at-home genetic screening um, for CF. I came back uh, negative on the, for carrying a mutation on the CFTR gene. If I was positive, um, we would have to do PGTM, which is, uh, genetic testing on the embryos, like on a specific gene, which is the CFTR gene. Um, because I wasn't a carrier, we didn't have to do PGTM. So we ended up doing the PGTA, which is, uh, more of just a screening of the chromosome abnormalities. Mm, got um, it. And so that is where we were like, well, for us, pers- like for us personally, it didn't matter. Like if we were able to like conceive with an abnormal um, embryo, chromosomally abnormal embryo, like that's just our personal um, personal feelings about it and our personal path. I think the biggest thing was when we were talking with our doctor was the rate of miscarriage. Um, Mm, And so mm -hmm. I think that was like, you know, also another deciding factor of like, okay, let's do the screening and see if this is something that could help us again, get to our baby a lot. But I guess in that sense, like quicker. Um, Yeah. Because all of, all of our, actually our top three embryos that were good quality were the abnormal ones, which was so weird mm. to us. We didn't know that. Mm. So I potentially would have miscarried multiple times mm-hmm. if, or yeah, I wonder if I might have potentially had to miscarry multiple times before we were able to conceive. Right. Now, did um, did Caleb do any or any carrier sc- screening? beforehand? No. I mean, we obviously knew that he had cystic fibrosis. So that was just like one of our biggest concerns at first. Mm -hmm. Now, like if we go back and if we have to do another retrieval, he doesn't have any biomarkers for like any other genetic um, conditions. And we actually just tested Faye as well um, for, it's like a a little bit more in-depth newborn screening um, that screens for over 200 rare genetics or rare conditions. So if something flagged up from there, then obviously it would have come from one of us. So if that were the case, then we would have probably done a more extensive uh, extensive screening for Caleb. Yeah. But I, my side of the family is more of the anomaly than his because we obviously know that he has a condition. So, right. Well, and I'm curious, like, if Mm -hmm. you, 
if you have cystic fibrosis, does that automatically mean that you are a carrier for it? Yes. Okay. Thank you for that education. Because I knew that like, because we did some genetic screening or carrier screening Mm -hmm. and we were carriers for some things, random things. Like, I don't, I don't know, like blindness in the left eye or something. Mm -hmm. Um, But I didn't, I don't have that. Yeah. You know, so it was like, okay, I cannot have something, but you could be a carrier for something. Right. So now when Faye grows up, so Faye is automatically a carrier because of Caleb. Um, mm, okay. If Caleb was just a, so now I guess we'll talk in Faye's sense as Faye grows and then she becomes, you know, she enters in the chapter of reproductive in her life, however she chooses, whatever that may be. We do want to educate her like, hey, you are a carrier of cystic fibrosis your partner, whomever that may be, like you should have them get carrier, that you should have them get tested. Carrier tested. To see if they're, mm-hmm. yeah, if they are a CF carrier. Because if both of them are CF carriers and they have a baby, that they have a 25% chance of having a baby with cystic fibrosis. Yeah. So, okay. and then 50% chance of their offspring having. Uh, 50% chance of their offspring being a carrier of cystic fibrosis and then a 25% chance of not of their child not being affected at all. Okay. Okay. So I guess the odds of it of like Caleb's parents were both carriers. They did not know they were carriers. They didn't know. Right. So they had their first kid, which is Caleb's brother. He... Um, actually was unaffected, didn't have CF. And they all didn't find this out until they're like later in their 30s. Like they didn't do carrier screening until they started to want to have kids of their own. Mm-hmm. So Caleb's brother didn't have, doesn't care, like is not a carrier. His two sisters are carriers. Okay. But they don't have the disease. They don't, no. Okay. Got it. So yeah. So as they planned, so Caleb's sister, one of his older sisters, she got, um, they were surprised by their little cute, their baby. So she had her husband uh, get tested and he was, ne- he was negative. Wow. Genetics, man. What it's a web. Crazy. What it a is. web. But what's so amazing now is that there's so much more accessibility to getting tests like carrier screening. And I cannot like encourage that more for anybody who is family planning or trying to conceive because I know it can be scary. It's a lot of information and sometimes it's like intimidating, but to be able to know, okay, like what is in your DNA and the potential like um, conditions that you can be passing down it, like you can just be so much more proactive about everything, whether if Absolutely. that's choosing, whether if that's choosing to do IVF or or not choosing to do it, but then knowing like okay to get your child tested as soon as possible, or at least look for symptoms. Like there's just so much like there's just so much knowledge or power in that knowledge. So. Mm-hmm. 
anything yeah. that really surprised you during the process? Um, gosh, a lot of things. I think the biggest thing was the the community around like the infertility, like in the infertility world. I mean, I connected with you, with Erin, with so many amazing, like true warrior advocates and people who were able to hold space for you. Because as you're going through this process, it's unfortunate um, that your family and your friends aren't generally like your number one support system, because unless they're going, have gone through it or going through it, they really don't know how to support you in the way that you need to be supported. So I think that was one of like the biggest surprises that I, it it was a pleasant surprise that walking into, into the whole process. Um, I was also really like proud of just my mental game. I've, like I've mentioned, I've struggled for a really long time with chronic depression and anxiety and, and sexual abuse. And so I think that going through all of this being poked and prodded, especially like the um, transvaginal ultrasounds and all that stuff, I really didn't know how my body physically was going to even react to it and like, let alone mentally and emotionally and spiritually. So I was really, really, really proud of myself that I did so much of like the groundbreaking healing work prior to starting the process. I think that's another thing that I would advocate for is like, if you know that IVF or even if you don't, like even if IVF, if you, if you're just trying to conceive, like you want to heal like as much of that childhood trauma. Cause we, we all have it. There's like, I mean, we all have different stories and live different lives, but there is something like many of things like in our childhood and our upbringing that were traumatic. And I think that's so important to address that and work through because generational trauma is truly a thing. And, you know, you're going to be, if you're wanting to hold this life and this soul and in your own womb, like you want to make sure that that's, you know, that space starts there, you know, it's not when they're Mm. in your arms. So I think that's um, one of the, another like pleasantly great um, things that I was surprised by. Um, And in turn, like that helps you become the best advocate for yourself when you're going through the process. Because if you go through like a bigger clinic, I kind of went through a semi bigger clinic, you're, you're treated as a person and like they see you, but you also kind of still feel like a number. So Absolutely. There's a lot of things going on and there's a lot of like just movement. And if you're not advocating for yourself, asking the questions and like pushing for results or just like pushing your doctors and your nurses, like it's, it's not, um, they're not going to do it for you. Not everyone, not all clinics. Okay, I don't want to say that. Not all clinics and all doctors. I still love my RE. I still love my nurses and everything, but I've heard, you know, other experiences are, may not be, um, may not be as pleasant. So you have to learn to be an advocate for yourself. What makes your blood boil about infertility? Oh, so many things. I wish we had a whole nother five hours for this, but. <laughs> 
tea, sis. Where's the drum? (laughs) (laughs) I'll keep it. I'll keep it. I'll keep it pretty PG. But I mean, I feel like a lot of people going through infertility feel the same. It's like people's assumption that it's that it's easy and that it's like designer baby. Like what the fuck? No, it's like, do you even understand? Like you have not been stabbed in the ass as many times as we have for you to understand this. Then um, I think that's, yeah, I think that's frustrating. And again, I mentioned like family and friends aren't your number one support system. And I had to let go of the expectations of them like, oh, going out of their way. Actually, you know, we've had some of our family and some of our friends like be really strong rocks, but like the majority aren't going to go out of their way to like understand the journey of like infertility and IVF to really like know the ins and outs of it. So I feel like there's like a disconnect a little bit sometimes like when you want that emotional support from the closest people in your life and you don't get it. So that's always like, I don't know if it makes my blood boil. It's more so just like a sad part about infertility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's sad that it's a growing, like we're a growing population, that it's becoming yeah. more and more of a diagnosis. And it's it's sad that with that insurance doesn't come. That's what makes my blood boil. What the heck? Healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of things wrong with healthcare. Yes what the frick? Like, yeah, zero, like zero things are covered by healthcare. Yeah. Like what? That's what I don't, I'm like, wait, how do you, what? What? (laughs) Yeah. Accessibility is, there's a major gap, major gap. Yes, yes, yes. And that is where I'm like, I just, I, yeah. That I'm like sweating just thinking about mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how much that makes me so mad. Yeah. It's like we're, and, and like we recognize beyond how privileged we are that we were be, that we were in the position to be able to try and to also re- like get our miracle baby in the first try. Like it just breaks my freaking heart that. There is no support whatsoever in the healthcare system for it. It's like, yeah, that's woman's reproductive, men's reproductive. Like, I just, yeah, yeah, and gone for days on that. Well, you kind of touched upon this, but do you have any suggestions for people that might be in your situation? You said definitely get the carrier screening. Anything else? Yeah. The carrier screening, having um, conversations earlier on with your partners, whether if you're in that place of trying to conceive or not. Um, My big, big thing is working on your mental health and becoming, because infertility, like an IVF, like, I mean, a lot of the battle is physical, but like, I swear 80 to 90% of it is mental. And I think if you're able to take on the the challenge and find the courage to go to those places where healing is needed, mm. I feel like it is so much more encouraging as you're and and so and you feel just so much more confident as you're going through the journey. Absolutely. And also working through expectations. I think that was probably one of the biggest things that I'll be working. It's a forever life lesson, right? 
forever life's work is how do we manage our expectations? Because that is like, yes, sister, we got it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, mom, you get it. Get it, get it, get it. Expectations. It's so true. It's so true. It's so hard, girlfriend, and we all have it, and it is, and it's okay to have. That's like, I think that's also another thing is like honoring those expectations, but also knowing that sometimes it's not meant to be met and, and, Mm. and being okay with that. Um, Oh gosh, my, my hair just like stood up as you said that, like just be okay with things not going your way. Right. And it's so much easier said than done. It's so much easier said than done. But like, as you know, we continue to work at it inch by inch by inch the blows get a little bit less like more intense and you just learn and you learn to find the like the like courage and like the strength and the resilience through it where you're like okay yeah that used to like really really bother me or that used I would have really expected something more from that person this result that thing this that that but like when you catch yourself in those moments of being like, oh, I've changed because I don't feel my pits getting sweaty. I don't feel my hands getting clammy. Mm. I don't feel the knots in my stomach. I don't feel the tears like try, like starting to bellow behind my eyes. I, I don't feel like I'm bothered as much by those expectations. Like, yeah, you're kind of like, oh, okay, I'm becoming a badass bitch. Like, yeah. I just need to keep working at that. And soon enough, it will like, like things will hit you. You'll take a moment to process it, but then I'll just glide right off, you know? Yes. Oh, I just love you. I could listen to you all day with that Carhartt, with that Carhartt hat, you know, and your headphones on. This is just. That's because I'm missing half of my hair on my head. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you you make it look good. You make it look good, Tiff. Thanks, girl. Oh, I love you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my gosh. How can people follow you and see your face on the reg? Oh, girl, if you got – but I come with a a forewarning that I am very unfiltered in our stories. (laughs) You see the whole shebang of everything. I love it. I love it. We are at us, the Remingtons. You can come see a little cute Faye, Caleb, and – Probably in the next year, our journey again when we start IVF all over, or at least transfer. Well, I will, we will be wishing you all the good juju. And, I love you um, so thank much. Thank you for being yes. here. Yes, thank you for having me, I sincerely, so heartedly appreciate you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Me, Myself, and Millie. Follow us on Instagram at Me, Myself, Millie for more podcast updates. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe and share on social media. A special thanks to my husband, Rowan Brooks, for technical support and Cal Reichenbach, who did all the music you heard in this episode. Thanks, cutie bombs, and see you next week.